Good morning. You're probably noticing right away that we're doing something a little bit different than what we usually do because around this portion of our service, either myself or Pastor Charles would read you a portion of scripture that would serve as the basis for the entire sermon. But today we're going to do things a little bit differently. Don't worry, today's message is firmly rooted in scripture, but actually we're going to look at multiple texts, more than we usually do, so that I could give you a panoramic view on a particular topic that has recently become very relevant and quite honestly should always be relevant to us, and that is the sin of racism. Four weeks ago, I preached a sermon to you guys on racial reconciliation entitled How to Love a Sermon, and part of that was stimulated by the tragic death of Ahmad Arbery. And now here we are yet again dealing with this problem of race in our country with the tragic murder of George Floyd who was killed at the hands of those who were called to sworn and protect. And you know, as we were bombarded by all the responses and all the reactions of social media that just magnified the anger that I'm sure many of us already felt as either we watched the video or maybe even heard about it or saw snippets of it, we struggled. We struggled because as that anger was pulsating in us, we've discovered something about ourselves that maybe we did not before, and that is discomfort. Discomfort. Not discomfort from our anger, but rather discomfort from the newness of our anger. And what I mean by that is, for many of us, this is the first time we are outraged at something that the African American community has been outraged for far too long. And because that is so, many of us are feeling like as if our outburst carries this too little, too late feeling to where we can't help but to feel somewhat complicit to the systemic injustice that so many of our black brothers and sisters in Christ have struggled with for a long time. Injustices that we in the Asian American community and specifically the Asian American church have not struggled with at all. I recently came across an article that I'm sure some of you have already read and become very familiar with. It was written by an Asian American pastor by the name of Richard Lee who works at the International Justice Mission. Listen to some of the things that he reflected on and the video that he watched on George Floyd's murder. He writes this, quote, As the video footage was posted and viewed millions of times, it was unsettling to watch the life of another black man taken so needlessly. But for me, this one felt different. There was something else that was unsettling about it, and it took me a bit of time to realize what it was that shook me. Eventually, I realized that what unsettled me about this video was the Asian face staring back at me, while a murderous act of a racist system was happening mere feet behind where he was standing. Tu Tao is the police officer who is doing crowd control in this video and is one of the four police officers who has been fired by Minneapolis police. Daniel Hill, in his book, White Awake, uses Reverend Julian DeShazie's definition of privilege as, quote, the ability to walk away. I was the Asian man in this video, refusing to intervene, conveniently avoiding the conflict which appears to be so clearly a black and white issue, not needing to be involved in the messiness of the race conversation in America. I am the Asian man in this video. I still have the ability to look away. I still have the ability to go through my life and never fear that this sort of abuse and violence will happen to me or my son. I can walk away, but I'm trying not to. I'm trying to listen and learn from my black and brown brothers and sisters. I'm trying to correct my misunderstanding and prejudices of shoulds and should nots. I'm trying to stop walking away, end quote. I imagine that as you read this article, you could probably resonate with the discomfort that Pastor Richard was experiencing. I know I did. 
And as a result, it can cause us to feel such discomfort, such unrest, such a sense of urgency to do something. You know, something active, something appropriate, something that would be approved by the black community. Because if we did, then maybe, just maybe, we could feel alleviation, maybe even acquittal from this sense of lack of outrage in the past. But consider the following two tweets that were sent out recently by two African-American pastors as they address this issue to the community outside of the black community. The first tweet goes like this, well-meaning white people, don't center yourself and add to the black burden by asking black friends questions to relieve your discomfort. Give it some time, and in the meantime, sit in the discomfort. It's white privilege that allowed you to be comfortable all these years. And then the second tweet goes like this, I'm committed to not healing guilt or shame on white people for the profound betrayal of love many of them are culpable for. I'm committed to encourage and spur on. But I desire peace and conciliation so much that I want y'all to feel the weight of this. Sit with it and repent. What are they saying? They're saying being discomforted by our previous lack of outrage is not something that we should be so quick to try and get out of our system. It's not something that we should try to just try to alleviate ourselves with. No, we need to sit in it and do some heartfelt probing and reflection. So that as we do, we can come out of it in such a way that gives glory to God, as well as give honor to our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ specifically, and even to the African-American community generally. And I happen to agree. You see, so many of us are just feeling so pent up with a sense of urgency to do something. But as is often the case in life, this situation that we're all in right now, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the Asian American community, and therefore it's not about our comfort. You and I, we need to sit in this, and we need to reflect, and we need a process so that we can be properly informed and not influenced. But therein lies the question, what exactly are we to process, and how are we to process? What are we to think through? What are we to prayerfully ponder? Well, that's a thing that I want to address today. So three things that I'd like to share with you in today's message. The first is we need to learn how to lament with the oppressed. We need to learn how to lament with the oppressed. Secondly, we need to learn from the oppressed. And finally, we need to be led to the Savior by the oppressed. Lament with the oppressed, learn from the oppressed, and be led to the Savior by the oppressed. Let's begin with the first point, lament with the oppressed. Let's take a look at our first passage for today, Habakkuk chapter 1, starting verse 2. It reads, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see inequity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, as I was reading this verse to you just now, I imagine like for many of you, you could easily imagine how these words could become the personal lamentations of so many in the African-American church. And indeed, so many African-American pastors and Christians use their social media platform and use this very text to express what they're currently feeling right now in this situation that we're all in. But here's what's so interesting. For many of us in the Asian American church, when we read this passage, say in the context of our devotion, many of us, if we're honest, would react, what am I supposed to do with this? 
because quite honestly, it just doesn't fit to our existential reality. We don't naturally resonate with, with the lamentation here from Habakkuk. It doesn't personally click. It doesn't connect to us, which is so odd because this is coming from Scripture. This is our book. This is supposed to be the story of us. Now, you can easily respond by saying, oh, pastor, this is talking about specific historical situation to a specific group of people, you know, the people during the days of the Old Testament. But you don't understand. This is our book. This is not just the Jewish book. This is not just the part of the Jewish Bible. This is part of our Bible. You know, that means all the commands that the Old Testament saints had to follow, they're commands we still have to follow, too, as God's people. All the promises that the Old Testament saints had to cling to are promises we still need to cling to. All the prayers that the Old Testament saints lifted up are prayers we should still be lifting up. And that also means all the laments that the people of God lifted up during the days of the Old Testament should be our laments as well. Consider what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. He says this, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. What's he saying? He's saying everything that was written in scripture, including Habakkuk 1, was written for our sake. In other words, God designed the scripture to where all of it would be personally relevant to us. And yet again, when we look at how we're at as an Asian American church in America, it's simply not the case where we have experienced the thing that Habakkuk is describing. Most of us, generally speaking, has not experienced the problem of the law being paralyzed for us or justice being perverted. And because that is so, two questions emerges. The first is, how come this passage of scripture isn't personally connecting or relevant to us when God says it should? And secondly, what do you think God is trying to teach us because of that? I recently read a story on Facebook of a white woman who grew up in Mississippi. And to her own admission, she says that at one point in her life, the concept of white supremacy didn't seem like a real thing to her. But then something changed. She fell in love and she married a man, a pastor, who was black and they had children together. She recounted a story on the first day of the church that he was serving as the interim pastor. And this is after she gave birth to their first child when a woman in the church came up to her and asked, so what country did you adopt that baby from? She didn't know how to respond. She was just shocked to hear those words. Listen to what she says as she reflected on that incident. Quote, that first experience has been a stark reminder that even in the church, and maybe especially in the mostly white conservative denomination, white ladies are not supposed to be joining their bodies with black bodies. I don't want to be crass, but the underlying supposition of the adoption question is this. You didn't have sex with a black man, did you? My union with my family from the most intimate one with my husband to my relationship with my children, all of whom I carried for nine months, fed from my body and slept close to during earliest years, is constantly battered by our societal surrender to white supremacy, end quote. Here is a woman who at one time could not personally connect to Habakkuk's lamentation to where it would be her own personal lamentation. But then something happened to where she was able to do that. And what was that? The answer is simple. It was proximity. Proximity. What I mean by that is she was able to get connected. She was able to get close with someone to where there was intimacy, 
there was investment, there was interdependence in such a way to where their hurt became her hurt. Their pain became her pain. Their sorrow became her sorrow. Their lamentation became her lamentation. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need to do as well. If you want to have scripture be relevant to you as it should, to where you can lament like Habakkuk, as God says we should, then you need to get connected and get close to those who can already personally lament with Habakkuk. So as you get close to them, they can help you connect to scripture and therefore to your God. You see, one of the things that scriptures like Habakkuk 1 teaches us is that God did not design us to be disconnected or distant from each other. No, quite the opposite. God created the human race in such a way. He designed us in such a way to where we would be close and connected to where your pain would be my pain and my sorrow would be your sorrow. But conversely, my good should be good for you. My blessing should bless you as well. This is the reality of the structure of how God created humanity. And this is something that we already know. I mean, isn't this something that we've learned brutally in this season of COVID-19? What did COVID-19 teach us? COVID-19 taught us that we are so intrinsically interconnected to one another to where if one person is getting hurt by COVID, we're all going to get hurt by COVID, right? And so what did we do? We did something that is so unnatural, something that is so like uncommon, something that is so not fitting. We did something known as social distancing, which, yes, mitigated the spread of the virus, but it also brought massive disruption, even destruction into our lives. Why? Because, again, it shows that God designed us to be connected. He designed us to be close to where my pain should be your pain. Your good should be good for me. We are designed to be in proximity. We're created to function by being connected and close to each other. And when we create unnatural and abnormal distance and disconnect to other people to where another group of folks are hurting and we don't feel the effects of that, what we're doing is we're bringing destruction and disruption socially that social distance created for us economically. I love these words from human rights lawyer Brian Stevenson. Listen to what he once said in a talk that he gave not too long ago. He said this, quote, I believe to make a difference in creating a healthier community, a healthier society, a healthier nation, we got to find ways to get proximate to the poor and the vulnerable. I believe when we isolate ourselves and allow ourselves to be shielded and disconnected from those who are vulnerable and disfavored, we sustain and contribute to these problems. I am persuaded that in proximity, there is something about how we can learn to change the world, how we can change the environment, and how we create healthier communities. Too often, we wait until we think we have all the answers before we get closer to those who have been marginalized. I am persuaded that we got to find ways to get closer to the disfavored, the marginalized, the excluded, the poor, the disabled, even if we don't have any answers on what we're going to do when we get there. The power is in proximity and quotes. The first thing I believe God is calling us to do as we sit in our discomfort, Asian American Christian, is that we must make the heartfelt commitment and develop the heartfelt conviction, conviction of being in proximity. Proximity to those who are hurting, proximity to those who have been oppressed, 
proximity who have been victims of genuine injustice. Proximity to our African-American brothers in Christ, as well as the African-American community. And the question is, what does that look like practically? Well, again, that's something we have to figure out. But we first have to make that first step of being willing and going after proximity. But at the very least, it includes getting so close in such a way to where there is intimacy, there is investment, there is interdependence, to where whatever blessing God has given the Asian American community can overflow and bless the African American community. And whatever sorrow and pain and lamentation that they lift up is something that we could personally lift up as well. This is why, by the way, the idea behind All Lives Matter that people are saying right now as a retort against Black Lives Matter, as understandable as it is, it really does not help. Because basically what it does, it functionally eradicates the responsibility of us needing to be in proximity to the African American community and African American church. It alleviates the need of needing to get close. Because think about it, what is the fundamental assumption behind All Lives Matter? It's the assumption that says no particular life has more value than any other, which is absolutely spot on. That is absolutely true. But you know what's odd? The whole Black Lives Matter, regardless of the underlying origin and source behind it, it carries that same assumption as well. Black Lives Matter assumes that all lives matter, but they're just pointing out the fact that historically speaking and culturally speaking, black lives in particular have not mattered as much as other ethnic groups. Clearly, there has been a real disparity of black lives compared to other ethnic lives in certain contexts socially and legally, and therefore there is a legitimate lamentation that should be lifted up, but it should not only be lifted up by the black race, it should be lifted up by the entire human race, because again, God designed the human race to be in connected community with one another, to where if one part of the body is hurting, another part of the body is hurting as well, humanly speaking, you see? So, Asian American Christian, the first thing that we must do as we sit in our discomfort is that we must make that heartfelt commitment, heartfelt conviction of being in proximity to the African American community generally and especially to the African American church specifically. Now, I know you hear that and it just feels so challenging and it feels so hard. And one of the reasons why it's so challenging and hard is because if you're honest, we're afraid. We're scared. For so many reasons. Maybe we're scared of the challenges ahead. Maybe we're scared of the fallout. Maybe we're scared of black people. But whatever reason to why you're afraid, the solution to all of those fears is still one and the same. And that is we need to know. We need to get knowledge. We need to learn. Because as they say, we only fear the things that we don't know, right? We need to be able to overcome our fears through learning so that as we learn, we can fear less and pursue this heartfelt commitment towards proximity. But of course, therein lies the question, what exactly are we to learn? How are we to learn? This leads me to my next point, learn from the oppressed. Uh, one of the things that you pick up right away when you read the letters of Paul in the New Testament is how well-learned Paul was. Paul was a very, very learned man, but here's the thing, he wasn't just learned in his Judaism or the Old Testament Bible. You come to discover that Paul was well-learned outside of those traditions. Let me show you. 
In two passages of scripture, Acts chapter 17 and Titus 1, we see Paul quoting non-Old Testament sources. Okay, let me read to you Acts 17. We're starting in verse 26. Uh, Paul says, From one man he made all the nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And then Titus 1. One of Crete's own prophets had said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Notice Paul both quoting people that are not in the Old Testament. In fact, if you do background studies, he's quoting three different pagan philosophers, pagan poets to be exact. Now what this tells us is two things. First thing is, again, I already told you, Paul learn stuff outside of his own ethnic and religious traditions. But secondly, by quoting these pagan or what we would call today secular sources in an affirming way tells us that in Paul's mind, there was some real truth behind them, even though the people who came up with these ideas came from God-hating, God-denying backgrounds. Now, notice what I didn't say, however. He did, I did not say that these pagan or secular sources have all, nothing but truth in them, but there is some truth in them. And given the fact that Paul quoted more of the Old Testament than pagan sources tells us that Paul was very careful and he was very selective on what he would recognize as truth from outside sources of sacred text. And the fact that he was this selective also assumes that Paul read a lot. He learned a lot. Okay? And I think that's an example we need to follow as well. As Christians who are called to be informed but not influenced, we need to make sure that we learn everything that we can possibly can, but at the same time carry a very critical and selective mindset so that we make sure that we can take what is true and reject what is false. So what I'd like to do right now is to give you some ideas as well as some resources so that you can be properly informed and not get influenced. So I want to first talk about some things that I want you to be informed of. And of course, the, there are so many more things that you can learn, but I think these are some foundational things that you need to be aware of that is very much a big part of the narratives that are going around right now in our society. So the first idea that I want you to be aware of is something known as critical race theory, CRT. This came out of the late 1970s, early 80s on Harvard's law campus, and it's centered around a professor by the name of Derek Bell. And what critical race theory basically says is that the ideology of white supremacy, okay, is embedded in every institutional system in our culture today. Whether you're talking about the educational system, the political system, the legal system, every system that you and I depend on and live in and do our life in has white supremacy embedded in it to where it intrinsically always benefits white people and holds back people of color. In fact, people who hold to this theory even say that the new laws that were enacted in response to civil rights that benefit people of color actually benefited more white people, specifically white women, because that's how embedded, that's how ubiquitous white supremacy is in our social psyche. So that's critical race theory, and you need to be familiar with that, because that is underlying assumed in all of the contexts that we're talking about when it comes to race today in America. The second idea that you need to be aware of is this thing known as intersectionality. And this is something that was coined by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw at, uh, at Columbia Law back in the 1980s. And the best way to explain intersectionality is to use this story. Imagine 
uh, you and another group of people have to get to a certain place at a certain time. Okay, you can't be late. You have to get there at a certain time. But there are two ways to get there. One way has a lot of intersections, a lot of lights. The other way has no lights at all. Okay, which path is going to be much harder in terms of getting to where you need to get to at a certain time? It's the place with all the intersections, right? That's intersectionality. This theory says that certain groups of people in life have basically metaphorical intersections that hold them back, that oppress them. One intersection could be being black. Another intersection could be being a woman. Another intersection is being gay, lesbian. So if you're a black woman who's gay, okay, you have more intersections of oppression holding you back from ever getting to whatever destination that you want to get to, whether it's a certain career, whether it's a certain financial level, whether it's a certain position in society. Right? But if you are white, if you are male, if you are heterosexual, then basically you have no intersections, or maybe a more appropriate way to say all of your intersections are nothing but green lights all the way. And you can get to your place much easier, much faster than everyone else. Maybe the only person who gets there. That's intersectionality. And that's something that you have to understand. That's the underlying assumption behind a lot of the talks today on the media about race. The third concept that you need to be aware of is something known as racialization. And this is a hard term to define because the definition is always changing. But in a nutshell, what racialization says is that society imputes generalizations of people based on external appearances, most specifically on skin color, race. And racialization also has assumptions that try to justify these generalizations. That's what racialization is all about. So these are three major concepts, ideas that you need to know. Now here's the thing though. What about these concepts are we to accept as Christians? And what are we to reject? And this is the hard part. And this is where we need to make sure that we're properly informed. And the best source to which to do that is to heed and listen and learn from some God-fearing, God-honoring, faithful Christians in the African-American church. And I want to give you some resources so that as you read these books, and yes, they're all books. And folks, I know many of you guys don't like to read, but here's the thing. Reading is the best way to sharpen your mind that video and audio just simply does not do. It challenges you to pause and to reflect and to think. So if you really want to be informed, you have to read. All right? So with that said, first book I want you to be aware of is Divided by Faith, written by Michael Emerson, Christian Smith, two Christian sociologists. And here they talk about how racialization has penetrated inside the white evangelical church to which the Asian American church is highly influenced by, by the way, and therefore explains why white evangelicals have not been able to attack racism effectively as they have wanted to in the past. The second book that I want to draw your attention to is Free at Last by Dr. Carl Ellis. He is, in my estimation, the best African-American Christian scholar that nobody knows about. And yet you need to know about him. And as you read this book or as you come to look at his lectures online on YouTube, by the way, all stuff that is pertinent to this discussion today, I will link in the description box of this YouTube video. So make sure you look out for that. But in his book, there are three concepts that you need to be familiar with. First is something that he calls ghetto nihilism. Second is creaturism. And then the third is achiever values versus unachiever values. This can really clarify some other underlying forces 
that the left-wing media is not acknowledging that you need to be aware of, okay? The third book that I want you to focus on is Woke Church by Dr. Eric Mason, okay? The first chapter of this book is worth the whole price of the book, guys. It is something that you need to process and consider, and it really explains why there are such dividing voices among African Americans, whether they're very conservative or very liberal, but he helps parse that out. The fourth book is Oneness Embraced by Dr. Tony Evans, where here Dr. Evans talks about the biblical and theological concept of racial oneness, as well as giving his insights about the African American struggle with racism. The fifth and final book is Liberating Black Theology, written by Dr. Anthony Bradley, who's an African American professor at King's College here in Manhattan. Here he gives a biblical critique of black liberation theology that is very much at the root of the social discussion today, even from those who are not Christian. Okay, so here are some sources that I feel you need to be aware of that can equip you so that you are informed, not influenced. If you take the time to really read and to process what they're saying, you'll come to find that you will be able to take what is good from secular sources and reject what is bad. Now, at this point I can't end it here because I do think there's one final thing that God is calling us to sit on in this discomfort. And this leads me to my last point, be led to the Savior by the oppressed. You know, one of the consequences that will happen when we're learning from the African-American community in general and specifically by the African-American church is that we will be in relation to them to where they are leading us and we are following them. Now, for some of us, that might seem wrong. That might seem off because in our minds, we might think to ourselves, no, the only person I follow is Jesus and Jesus alone. Well, Consider what Paul says on this matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. If there was anyone who was zealous for giving glory to God alone through Christ alone, it was Paul. It was Paul, and yet that very same Paul says to his people, follow me. Follow my example. You see, in Paul's understanding, and really the spirit of God's understanding, since he's inspired by the spirit of God, is that God set up the church in such a way to where certain people are called by the Lord to lead others in the church. Now you hear that and you're probably wondering, well, what exactly are the qualifications for such a person? What makes such people set apart in that way to where they're called and qualified to lead others in the church? Well, Jesus actually tells us in his own words as he talks about Paul specifically to another person. Consider what Jesus says about Paul in Acts chapter 9. He said this, Saul, or Paul, is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Hmm. According to Jesus, what qualified Paul to be an example for others to follow to where as they follow him, they get closer to Jesus, is his sufferings. His sufferings as an apostle. Okay? And if you want to know why that is the case, consider what Paul says in his own words in Philippians 3, starting in verse 10. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. You know, one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that those who have the most deepest, most intimate relationship with Jesus are those who have suffered greatly unjust sufferings. Why? 
because those are the people who are the most in proximity to the sufferings of Jesus. They, more than anyone, share a common experience with Jesus of unjust suffering to where as they see that, they not only see their own victimization, but they see the greatest victimization of all, Christ crucified. And as a result, they do what Paul says, they fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. And when they see this Jesus, and they respond appropriately by submitting their lives to him as Lord and really subject themselves to the full authority of God's word, they become the example that we are to follow. Because as we follow their example, they help us to get closer and closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, those who have suffered unjustly will be able to see more than those who have not suffered as much as they God's love for his people, not just love for those who have suffered a lot, but for all of his people. Therefore, they have the insights, they have the experience, they have the knowledge to teach us of what it means to truly be intimate with Jesus Christ. Do you realize what this means, folks? It means we have so much to learn from those who have been unjustly oppressed, unjustly victimized. And that definitely includes our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we follow their example and as we seek to learn from them, and as we see how they process this whole thing going on in their communities, how they reach out to their communities, and how they deconstruct even their community's criticism of what's happening in the world, we get properly informed rather than influenced. We get therefore equipped with the desire and the wherewithal to make a commitment to proximity. Now you hear this, and many of you are going to be challenged as you should. You know why? Because like me, I am willing to bet you grew up in a certain cultural context where this kind of recognition of the value African American communities, and specifically the African American church, could give to us has not been recognized. In fact, many of us, if we're honest, probably grew up with the attitude that there's nothing that the African-American community or the African-American church could positively benefit the Asian-American community and specifically the Asian-American church. And it's that idea that we need to get rid of. It's that tacit belief that we need to repent of. We need to come to a place where we understand that God designed the human race, the human race to come together and to help each other grow and to get closer to Jesus, to where we can truly be a blessing to the African-American community, and they can be a blessing to us, and we can show to the world what true oneness looks like, that politics, that any other ideology, that economics cannot do, but only Christ can do, and Christ alone. If we're able to have that mindset, if we're able to sit on that, we will therefore be prepared when our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ will be able to recover from the collective pain that they're struggling right now and extend back to us the right hand of fellowship, which they will do, because Christ, their Lord, will compel them to do that. Their love for the Savior will compel them to do that. The question is, are we going to be ready to take it so that we can come together in oneness and that we can learn and also be blessed and extend the blessings that God has given to us to them.
and learn from them and lament with them. That is my hope and prayer. And I hope and pray that that will be your prayer as well. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your grace and mercy will be upon us as a nation, as a society. God, there are so many competing narratives, ideas, things that are going against one another that it can leave us so disoriented and so discouraged. But Father, we trust in the power of your word, the clarity of your word, and we trust in the work of what the blood of Jesus has accomplished of dismantling the wall of hostility amongst all the nations, making your people one so that we can truly be an example to the watching world. Father, so many are shouting out solutions to this problem that we're in, whether it's getting rid of the police, reformed in, in politics and law enforcement. But Lord, we know that there's only one solution and that it comes from you. God, would you hear us and would you heal us? And we let it begin with us in the Asian American church community to where we would truly sit in this com discomfort that we're in right now, to where we would lament, that we would learn, and that we would be ready to be led by the example of those who love you, who have struggled, and yet will stay faithful to you because of your amazing love. Help us to be ready to do these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Cut.